Okay, so just before we get to Acts chapter 2, I just want to give a very quick recap as to where we left off last week. And David's son, who was also a traitor, died a cursed death. And like Judas, a tree witnessed his demise. Many types and shadows in the word of God. As I say, David is a type of Christ. And Absalom, his wayward son, is a picture of Judas Iscariot's betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. On top of that, we also discover that when Judas betrays the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord graciously calls him friend. You find that in John 18. The 30 pieces of silver, which was the crude value of a female slave, was later used by the apostate Jews to buy a field to bury strangers in. See Matthew 27. But Judas Iscariot was ultimately responsible for this. So Matthew 27 and Acts chapter 1 harmonise quite nicely. And I say that because sometimes people are of the opinion there's a slight uh, contradiction. There's no contradiction in the word of God. Only when you think outside of the box or only when you allow two verses to contradict. If you come across a passage or passages which seem to conflict, the problem is with yourself. After the Lord's resurrection, he chose to appear only to a select group of saved people, over 500 people at once. See 1 Corinthians 15. He didn't cast his pearls before swine. Also from chapter 1, verse 5, the Word of God told us how the Holy Ghost would baptise the apostles. But I believe pre-Acts 1, they were already saved, but they were not born again until Acts chapter 2. How do we reconcile that? Quite simply, they received an imputed righteousness, like Abraham did. They believed on the Lord, and it was imputed unto them for righteousness. So just a few points to add in addition to chapter 1, and that's why it's so important. Uh, so important to dig deep into the word of God, to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So let's start today with May in chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They, being the twelve, were all together in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. They didn't know the exact moment that the Holy Ghost would come upon them, only that he was due to arrive in the imminent future at a time that they weren't aware of. And they're sitting, worshipping the Lord perhaps, but what I get from 1 and 2 is a fact that they didn't know the exact moment of his arrival. And this goes back to what I said last time, there's no papal infallibility, there's no extra light, there's not uh, any individual who's given greater revelation from the Lord, there's no Gnosticism here, they're all with one accord in one place, waiting in anticipation for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Verse 3, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Cloven, Old English for separated, split or divided, and I would take this word cloven to ultimately mean different types of tongues. And it sat upon each of them. The twelve apostles, you can't miss it, and I showed you last time from chapter 1 how the context is first and foremost to the apostles. Yes, it's possible the 70 might have been present, and yes, it's possible that the women found in verses 14 and 15 and 16 might have been possible, but ultimately the context is in reference to the 12 apostles. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as a spirit gave them utterance, different tongues for different apostles. Now, it's quite possible that the twelve apostles all spoke in tongues at the same time, being different languages of course, but that would slightly clash with 1 Corinthians 14. 
where you were told very clearly how no more than two or three men should ever speak in tongues at one given time, never when unsaved people are present, and always when an interpreter is present. So it's very difficult to know whether or not they all spoke in tongues at the same time, or one after the other. But the next few verses gives us a slight clue. Verse 5, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. The Jews require a sign, and the nation of Israel began with a sign back in Exodus chapter 4. And these are devout men of Israel that have come to Jerusalem to worship at Pentecost. Verse 1, And they travelled from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language, different dialects, different regional accents perhaps, but the focus is still very much on Israel. There's no Gentiles present. You might possibly find a few proselytes here, but I'm going to stick to the uh, view that these are Jewish men, verse 5, that have travelled up to the Pentecost feast day to worship the Lord. And that's why the next few verses are going to stay uh, primarily focused on Israel, Jewish men. But you can't rule out the possibility of some proselytes, some Gentile converts to Judaism. But that is perhaps stretching it a little. Verse 7. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? They knew exactly what was going on. The apostles were for the most part from Galilee. And I've been to Galilee and Galilee is very near Nazareth, and today Nazareth is predominantly a Muslim area. But these men, although they had come from many miles uh, to worship the Lord on the feast day of Pentecost, they knew exactly what was going on. And it says in verse 6 how this was noised abroad. This commotion, found in verses 2, 3, and 4, had spread abroad. And this almost pictures evangelism. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they took this great new blessing onto the streets. And I say to Christians, don't keep the good news to yourself. Take it out into the highways and the byways. But this is still very much uh, a miracle. This is a supernatural event. And I'll say this also, that what you are reading here only happened once in 30 AD. It didn't happen in 31 AD. It didn't happen in 32 AD. It did not happen in 33 AD or 34 AD or 35 AD or 36 AD or 37 AD or 38 AD or 39 AD or 40 AD. This was a one-off event. So please don't read these verses and think they are still applicable for today. They are not. Verse 8. And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? It's a good question. How can these men that were for the most part fishermen, they weren't linguists, they weren't scholars. We find in chapter 5 how they didn't know letters, they weren't academics, they were for the most part lower or upper working class individuals. They weren't of the teaching elite, they weren't from the Sanhedrin, they weren't your super duper people, they were just ordinary folks for the most part, and they quite rightly uh, are wondering, they are pondering how they're hearing every man, not woman, speak in our own tongue wherein we were born. With God all things are possible, and you would imagine, wouldn't you, that for the day of Pentecost, a miracle would have to occur, something which would be unprecedented, never to occur again. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes, and Elamites, and the dwellers of Mesopotamia, and in Judea, and Cappadocia, in Pontus, and Asia, Pygyra, and Pamphylia in Egypt, and in the parts of Libya, about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues, the wonderful works of God. I count at least 12 groups of people here, and this is a clue, when I get to my understanding of 
who exactly is speaking in tongues. And we know that the apostles are 12, chapter 2, verse 1. And we saw from chapter 1, 24, 25, how Matthias replaced Judas. So there's no doubt you've got 12 apostles now. And from 9, 10, 11, there are at least 12 groups of people. And they are hearing the wonderful works of God preached. It could be that what they initially heard were praising and worship and singing psalms to the uh, individual that had appeared on Pentecost to witness this event. I don't think they were preaching the gospel because the next few verses are slightly uh, uh, uncertain as to what they've just heard. Had they been preaching the gospel, they either would have accepted it or rejected it. Verse 12, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Look at 1 Corinthians uh, 14, please. 1 Corinthians 14. Just finished going through 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 14, there's a cross-reference here which fits in with this. 1 Corinthians 14, 21. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. I'm going to speak to a group of people, 1421, and he's quoting that from Isaiah. And they're not going to understand me, Isaiah 28 to be precise. And it says, with men of other tongues and other lips, that be the apostles, will I speak unto this people, the Jewish remnant, Acts 2. And yet for all that, they will not hear me, saith the Lord. And that's why most of the Jews that were present on Pentecost didn't quite understand it, didn't quite receive it. So therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those which believe, but to those which believe not. Please go back to Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. If you don't understand something, you normally kick it against it. And on top of kicking against it, you normally ridicule it. 14. But Peter standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, which is around 9am. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's break this down. Verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Messianic, time clock, first coming, resurrection, ascension. Saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. No doubt in reference to Jewish people, men and women. And this is a quote, as I say, from Joel chapter 2. And he goes on to say, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Philip's daughters were prophets in the sense of worshipping the Lord, proclaiming truths of the Lord. Ananias was shown a vision about Paul, and uh, even John the Baptist's father was also shown a vision, and he was given the prophecy that his wife Elizabeth would bear John the Baptist. So this 
very much in reference to the first coming, but move on, and on my servants, and on my handmaidens, 18, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Still in reference to the first coming, servants, handmaids, even Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaim the Lord's uh, truth. She worshipped the Lord in truth and in spirit. She prophesied as to the Lord's coming. She was told that she would give birth to the Lord of the universe. 19. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. Second advent. Second coming. This has not yet occurred. 20. The sun shall be turned into darkness. Matthew 24. Second coming. And the moon into blood has not yet occurred before that great and notable day of the Lord come. That's the second coming, not the rapture. And it shall come to pass that whosoever, Jew or Gentile, male or female, makes no difference, shall call on the name of the Lord, L-O-R-D, uppercase in your Bible, in reference to Jehovah. But in the New Testament, we are told that Jehovah is Jesus Christ, shall be saved. So this has a twofold application. First of all, this is in reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on top of that, this is in reference to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved today, he will save you. And if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Great Tribulation, he will save you as well. So with always, you're getting the first coming, the second coming, and as we read on, the millennium as well. That's why you need to read the Word of God very carefully. And don't take verses out of context. You have to exegete the Word of God, never exegete the Word of God. Which means quite simply, when you read the Word of God, just take from the text what is clearly there. Don't read into the text something which is not there. Verse 22, please. Ye men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. Ye men of Israel, 22, Christ, a man of miracles, Declared unto you, which yourselves also know, ye have taken by wicked hands, crucified him, and slain him. This is so in reference to Israel, you can't miss it. And as I say, there's no Gentiles present. This is going to lead up to the nation of Israel having to repent. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. Even these foreign Jews from verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 are held responsible for their nation crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ and the Jews are responsible for his death. But please turn to First Thessalonians, if you will. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, again scripture with scripture. And although the Jews are held as responsible for his death, you were told to love the Jews. You were told in the book of Romans how they are beloved for their father's sakes. So anti-Semitism is out, and if you hate a Jew, or if you are a Jew hater, you are at enmity with the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 14, please. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved. To fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. Please go back to Acts chapter 2. So you see the blame is still very much on the Jews. 
And yet, as I say, you can't hate the Jews. You were told to pray for the Jews. You were told to make them jealous, envious of our faith in the blessed Messiah. And through their uh, apostasy, through their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we the Gentiles are grafted in and we the Gentiles are the people of God for today. Which simply means that during the church age, we are God's people. But once a rapture has occurred, Revelation chapter 4, the Lord goes back to Israel and he starts to deal with Israel as a nation. So these verses are really underscoring the fact that Israel is responsible for their Messiah's crucifixion. And that's why Peter, as a Jewish apostle, is preaching on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish feast day, not a religious denomination, to the people of Israel who have come up to Israel to worship the Lord God of the Bible. Be very careful, please, if you take these verses and apply them doctrinally to those of us living in the church age today. Always remember that there are three aspects to the Word of God, doctrinal, historical, and eschatological. Historical, which is what we're reading now, doctrinal, which will be the Pauline epistles, and eschatological, meaning the last days, the future events, which, although this is slightly touching on, uh, these verses are very much in reference to Israel during a testimonial period from law to grace. So be very careful not to read these verses and try and teach it doctrinally uh, to your own fellowship, to your own group of Christians, or even to yourself. Verse 25, please. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The Lord dies on the cross. He goes into the ground. And for three days and three nights. His body is in the tomb. And we're told that he goes into the ground. Paradise. Luke 16. And he scoops up the righteous dead. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So on and so forth. And along with the thief who dies on the cross. He takes him up into heaven and Paul told you to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord but whilst he's in the ground he's also preaching to the wicked dead Herod the Great uh, Pharaoh and probably Cain and individuals such as that but he says in 27 one last time because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption thine holy one is Jesus Christ and in your Catholic catechism they have blasphemously stated that the holy one is Mary but it's not Mary is the Lord Jesus Christ. 28. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. David prophesying. 25. Concern the Lord which he always saw before his face. David through the Holy Spirit is prophesying about seeing the Lord. L-O-R-D probably in uppercase back in the Old Testament in reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is almighty God and I'll say this one more time if I may, and you'll hear this several times from me over the next several weeks and months. When you sin against God, only God himself can forgive you. That's why we believe in this ministry that Jesus Christ is almighty God. He's not Michael the Archangel, which means who is like God. He's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, or Jesus, means Jehovah saves. So be very careful what you do with these verses and uh, how you consider the Lord Jesus Christ or who you consider him to be. He's more than just a good man. He's more than just a prophet. He is almighty God. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day, as is Muhammad, as is Confucius, as are the last 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50 popes. And if you were to find any fragments of the Lord's body, a piece of hair, a piece of a toenail, 
a piece of clothing. And I don't mean to sound crude when I say this, but if you were to find any aspect of the Lord's body, our faith would be over in a split second. 30. Therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Unlike all of the other leaders I've just listed, Jesus Christ didn't see corruption. He hangs on the cross, he's taken down before, uh, his bones are broken, he's taken down sooner than most people were taken down. And this goes back to what I just said, that Christ is exclusive, he is above all other so-called religious people, neither did his flesh see corruption. As I say, he's taken down from the cross earlier than was anticipated, and you find the account when Pontius Pilate is shocked that he's died so soon, he's shocked that the Lord has died within, what, six hours, and what would normally happen is they'd have to break the bones of those that were crucified to speed up the death, but it wasn't necessary with the Lord. In fact, it was prophesied back in the Old Testament that not one bone of him would be broken. 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I get infuriated when I speak to people in the streets who say that the New Testament wasn't written by eyewitnesses, but it was written by people in the 2nd and 3rd century. That is sheer folly. We know by 180 AD that the entire Bible was written and in circulation. In fact, we know by 180 AD that the church fathers, the church leaders, had quoted the New Testament 87,000 times. And yet, from Catholic tradition, we're told that the Council of Carthage, around 380 AD, I believe, or thereabouts, they officially affirmed what the New Testament consisted of, which is 27 books, but please understand this, that the true church, the Bible-believing community from Pentecost to probably Constantine and beyond, always knew what the Word of God was. So what you're finding in Carthage are a group of unsaved religious people coming together to affirm what we already knew, that the New Testament consists of 27 books. But here, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. God the Father resurrected him, and we also find that from Galatians chapter 1. God the Holy Spirit resurrected him, and we find that from Romans chapter 8. And God the Son resurrected his own body, and we find that from John chapter 2. But we all are witnesses. We the twelve, and that would include Matthias, because Matthias, I believe, was one of the seventy. Verse 33, please. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted... And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David has not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. That is in reference to the end of the millennium. And on top of that, David is speaking to the Holy Spirit in reference to the Lord, saying unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. David was the king of Israel, and he had many sons, and Absalom was his most dubious son, and yet David, as a king of Israel, would never once call any of his sons Lord. And this is why the Lord said to the Pharisees, who is David speaking about? He's speaking about Jesus Christ. My Lord, Jehovah, said unto my Lord, Jehovah, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Or in the Gospels, until I make thy enemies thy footstool. One day the Lord's going to put all his enemies down. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, 
whether you are Muslim or Sikh or Hindu or Freemason or Catholic or Protestant, if you are an enemy of his, he's going to put you down. He's going to literally execute you. Because when he comes back at the second coming, he comes back as the victorious son of David to rule and reign for a thousand years. And if you want to know more about that, read the book of Joshua. Joshua is a type of Christ and Joshua mirrors the Lord Jesus Christ on many accounts along with King David. So I'm going to stop today in verse 35 and as a very final and brief recap in the last 60 seconds that I have, all I will say is that the focus on these verses is towards Israel. And this is building up to Israel's need to repent. This is a nation's need to repent of crucifying her Messiah, not believing on her Messiah and taking sides with the unbelieving or the apostate Gentile elite. What do they say? We will not have this man to rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. Let his blood be on us and on our children. And it absolutely was. So don't take these verses and try and teach us in a doctrinal sense to the church today. If you do so, that's very problematic. This is a historical account of what the early church had to go through. And this is going to be a historical account of what the early church had to do to preach the gospel, first of all to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. But 47 verses from Acts chapter 2 are exclusively focusing on Israel proper, on the people of Israel as a nation. And therefore you cannot take these verses and teach them doctrinally for those of us living today. But you can spiritualize them, and I will deal with that when we return next time to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 36.